Good morning, Palmetto Baptist Church. Good morning. Thank you so much for gathering with us to worship the risen Christ. We're thrilled that you're here this morning for our worship service. If you're a first-time guest or if you typically don't attend our church, there's a connection card in the seat pocket in front of you. We would love for you to take the opportunity to fill that out. That would just help us to make a personal connection with you, and that's really our desire. We'd love to start a relationship with you in which we can encourage you in the Lord Jesus Christ. We also have a gift for you at one of the welcome tables in the back. We'd love to give that as a token of hospitality. There is also a QR code on that card. If you want to get connected with one of our small groups, that's a very personal ministry in which we regularly connect with each other as a body. We'd love to have you in one of those. Please let us know any special way in which we can pray for you or serve you. And we hope you're encouraged in the Lord in your time with us this morning. As we gather in God's presence and we come before him in worship, please consider this section of a psalm of ascent. And picture worshipers pilgriming to Jerusalem, ascending the Temple Mount, or perhaps the Lord's armies returning victorious from conquest as they invoke God's presence in the gates of the temple. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Let's pray to the Lord. Our great God, we invite your presence in worship today. We know beyond doubt that we're sinners condemned under your wrath because we are so wicked and depraved. So we gladly confess Christ, our Lord and Savior, the one man who is worthy, who can approach your presence by the blood of of his sacrifice, making us perfectly acceptable. We come in his name, empowered by his spirit. Please receive our worship this morning. Amen. There truly is one who is glorious, and we're going to sing of that truth this morning, so I invite you to stand as we sing the song, Glorious. Yeah. 
Continue our time of worship with singing our song of the month, Abide. I hope this has been a blessing to you in the same way that it has been to me.
after that so I need a break but praise God that we can abide in him and he has the answers for your issues no matter what they are no one else may even know and one of the things we want to let you know about is an opportunity for us to grow as a couples and as a family so this coming month in March about a, a month from today we have a family weekend. I want to let you know about that. It's not just a couple's retreat, which we have that part. That's a Friday night through Saturday midday, and that'll be a really great thing. You've got to sign up for that. We've already, all of the overnight uh, accommodations are spoken for out at Camp Sakanaga, and it's going to be a great time. We have Dave Burgraff coming. There is a QR code that you can sign up for that, and also in the e-news, there's other information. But just want to let you know why are we doing this. We believe that the strength of this church is really going to come down to your individual walk with God and your family. And we want to build that. We want to give you tools. We want to help you as couples. That's the foundation that God created for the family. We can't just decide what a family is and just say this is a family. Uh, the Bible tells us what a family is, and God tells us how it is to be Operate, how a family is supposed to operate. So we're going to go back to God's word, have a speaker come and help us address things that are going on in each one of our lives. We're all at different points in our sanctification individually, and our families are at different points of growth as well. And we want to invest in you. And then that Sunday is going to be a special family uh, time as well. And Dave is going to be speaking that uh, main service. And then we have very special equip hours. We're going to clean the slate, and we have four different 
uh, equip hours that will be available for every everyone can join. So it's a good opportunity to f mix around and get with somebody that you don't normally get in your equip hour and visit one of the classes that will be offered. We have Blueprint for Marriage. There's one, What Happens When Things Go Wrong. And there's another uh, session that's going to be on how do I influence the next generation? You might you say, well, I'm not married, but I want to influence the next generation. Or maybe my kids are gone, or, or I'm, I'm alone, I'm a widow, or uh, you think I can't influence. This is an opportunity for you to say, how in our church can you uh, influence that? And then uh, Dave has another one as well. How do you parent adult children? Uh, that's another session. So there's all kinds of, there's something for everyone. And so come plan to be here on that Sunday. And couples, if you are uh, engaged or uh, to be married or you're uh, uh, been married one to zero, uh, one, uh, sorry, zero to a hundred years, uh, you come to that uh, family weekend and that couple seminar is going to be a great time. So uh, as we mentioned, all the overnight accommodations are taken care of. But if you want to do the wilderness camping and cut down trees with your wife, and build a tent, and then you'll need counseling after that, I'm sure. Uh, it's a good opportunity. But uh, all, the, all the normal, modern accommodations are taken care of. So there's still plenty of room for people to sign up for that, and I encourage you to do that. So we want to take some time as a church and invest in you, invest in our families. We feel like that's the most important thing we can do. Um, instead of just coming and um, going through life and not really addressing. So take some time. It's a commitment. It will tell your family, it will tell your children what your priorities are. What you invest in tells everyone around you what, what is important to you. And it's a good opportunity to make, make the commitment. So I encourage you, if you haven't, if you're considering you're on the fence, uh, make that commitment to say, we're going to learn something. God, give it to him. Let him teach you something that weekend. We'll have a great time together. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for marriage. Thank you for families, that you placed us in families. You designed this from eternity past, that this was the way that we would learn about you, that we would come and we would flourish. So I pray that we would, as we, as a church, set aside time next month to focus on our families, to focus on our marriages, our relationships. Pray that you would use your word and drive it deep into our hearts, change us, our hearts are so prone to wander and selfishness, and we need to be reminded. We need to be drawn back to your way and your way of living, your way of worshiping. So I pray that you would bless this time, our efforts, be with Brother Dave and Lucy as they come, that you would effectively use them to, to help our church grow. And we give this weekend to you. Look forward to what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, kids, you can head to the front. K-5 through 5th grade. Good to see all of you again. Guess what? We have a new series that's starting today. We have spent a year, somewhere around a year, doing the attributes and names of God. And does anyone know what we're starting with today? The promises of God. Yep, that's right. We're going through not all the promises, but we'll hit a lot of them. And I just have a little uh, illustration to get this started. And I'm wondering, how many of you have been on a roller coaster before? Have any of you been on the ones that just go in a circle like this? They go back and forth, and they swing higher and higher, and sometimes they stop upside down. Those are, that's my least favorite roller coaster. I was on one. It was like a pirate ship doing what pirate ships do, obviously, spin around in circles like that. And you have... You have the brace that's holding you in. You know what I'm talking about? It comes down, and then it clicks in place. Sometimes it clicks really tight, and sometimes it clicks kind of far away. And you're, you're like, oh, I don't know if this is going to hold me. Um, 
but it's actually maybe helpful to think of the promises of God like that, what would you call it? Vest that's holding you in. Uh, I'm drawing a blank here. But anyways, you're going up and down, and there's times when you're right side up where you're like, oh, it's good to know that's there, but your hands are up. But then there's times when life is upside down, and you're holding on to that with all of your life. You, ha- you are making a mark on that metal grip, and your handprint is now engraved in that seat. Uh, this is what the promises of God. Sometimes we're just, life is right side up, and it's good to know that those promises are there and, ho- and holding us. But then there's other times when life is upside down, and we need those promises. We're going to hold on to those promises, or uh, we feel like we're going to fall through. And that's, I mean, the Christian life. Do you think that's going to be a breeze? You think you're going to do all this self-denial and following Christ in your own strength? You're not. It's going to be the promises of God that guide us and that hold us, and a lot of times that you're going to be holding on to for life. And so we're going to learn those promises. We know what we can hold on to and put our faith in. Uh, so I'm just really excited about this, this next series. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll go upstairs and uh, learn the first promise. Father, thank you so much that there are promises that you've given to some of us and also promises that you've given to all of us. And I pray that you would take these, these promises, the ones that we know we find their yes and amen in Christ, and that you would drive them into our heart and um, give us a peace as we know we're, we're held fast by these promises, that you're faithful to all of your promises. If there's something that you've promised in your word, what in the universe can shake that? What, what can take us off the path that you've laid in front of us? And so I pray that you would give us clarity on the things that you've um, said will come true, that you will do, things that you won't do, and that would give us strength and hope uh, to live this uh, roller coaster of life. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. God is also always faithful to his promises. And uh, one of those promises is that Jesus paid it all. And that's what we're going to sing next this morning. I invite you to stand as we uh, sing this hymn.
guys, you may be seated. Oh, what a blessing this morning to sing together and worship together. Thank you, Joe and worship team for leading us so well this morning. And uh, I think every hymn we sang this morning I, I was resonating with because of what I've spent my week doing. And I hope you have resonated that way as the Lord has shepherded you through your own week. A lot of exciting things happening at PBC. So glad that the Lord is at work in our midst. And uh, I can't wait to share some of those with you in the Lord's time. But just be aware that God is at work. We're, we're very excited. The elders uh, are just uh, coming before the Lord daily and asking the Lord to continue to, to do that work in us that needs to be done. And part of that work as we come to the Word this morning is, uh, is going on all around us. <clears throat> I'm excited uh, today to uh, introduce some, of some friends that are visiting uh, I don't normally take time in the morning service to do this, but uh, we do have Chad Filipiak with us. Chad, just raise your hand back there. Uh, Chad is uh, 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 Chad and Kelly have been friends for, I don't know, 30 years, and it's kind of neat to see how God has intersected our lives, uh, and he's here uh, this week to help us do a sound audit so that we can maximize the use of this space that we're in. I know that some of you sit in places where it sounds incredibly loud, almost piercingly loud, and some of you sit in places where you can hardly hear. And so some of that's just the building dynamics we're in. And so for some time, our elders and our AV team have been talking, and, uh, and so Chad has come to help us with that, and so glad that, that he is here. Kelly's not here with him, but it's, gr- it's always good to see Chad, and I'm glad you're here this morning. Thank you for your ministry to us. And then another friend that's here this morning uh, from Harvest Ministries on Guam is Pastor Gary Walton and his wife Faith and their family. And they're sitting right back there. Gary, so glad you're here. And uh, I told Gary when I saw him this morning that if I had known he was here, I would have asked him to preach uh, because I want you to hear this brother and I want you to become aware of what God is doing on the island of Guam. I went out there every year for almost 20 years and uh, saw just amazing things. And when God brought the Waltons there, uh, what a joy it was to see God uh, flourish that ministry through his uh, preaching and teaching. And I am eager for our church to, to hear him. And so uh, I look forward to that in the future. Some of you have gone uh, and been part of Cool School and some of the other programs that are out there. And so we, uh, we love Harvest Ministries and are so grateful, uh, Pastor Walton, that you're here. Uh, let me say a word about our speaker for the Couples Conference. The elders asked me to do that this morning. Uh, by the way, <clears throat> I did sign up for the Couples Conference, just so you know. Uh, there's been a lot of mocking that has been going on here in the last couple of weeks about this. Uh, but I did sign up for the right Couples Conference. And as soon as I signed up, I walked in the house, and Beth said, did you sign up for the Couples Conference? I said, yeah, aren't you proud of me? And she said, I just signed up for the Couples Conference. (laughs) And so both of us paid for two conferences. So we must really need this conference. The Lord knows that. And uh, so the Lord bless us and keep us and cause his face to shine upon us. But the... um, 
the individual that is coming, the, the pastor that is coming, I am so excited for our church to hear. Uh, Dave and Lucy Burgraff have been in ministry uh, for many, many years. He has been a pastor. He uh, has been a, a, a seminary president and professor. Uh, he has been an executive pastor at Colonial uh, Baptist Church in Cary, North Carolina. He has uh, taught all over the world. Uh, he has been involved in college ministry around numbers of colleges, and he currently serves as a professor at Shepherd's Theological Seminary, another wonderful ministry that uh, many of our folks are connected with. And so Dave will be with us. The thing I love about Dave is not all of the experiences that he's had and all of the titles that he has. The thing I love most about Dave is that he's real. And he has lived the journey that he's going to talk to us about when he comes for those days and for that weekend. He will be doing the couples conference. And by the way, even though all of the uh, on-site accommodations are, are taken, that site is within about a 30 to 40 minute drive from here. So you may not want to spend the night. You may just want to go up for the sessions. And if you get on the app, you'll see that option is available. And I really want to encourage you, if you haven't signed up, to do so. This is a very, very important moment in our church life. And I'm so glad that Dave and Lucy will be here. He will be speaking the Sunday morning that he is here. And he will be taking that morning, along with the Equip Hour, to speak to us on the topic of the family. So... Lots of good things happening, and one of those is we're back in the book of Daniel. So let me ask you to turn to Daniel chapter 10, and I want to continue a message that we began last week as we journeyed back to the book of Daniel. And while you're turning to that passage in Daniel chapter 10, I want to just remind you that this book focuses attention on three main characters. There is a pagan king that shows up throughout the book. And that king is going to be sort of typical of a lot of the other kings that show up in the last half of the book. So not only are we going to meet Nebuchadnezzar personally in the book, we're also going to see that he is a type of other kings that are going to be leading world empires and at the head of human government from his day till the time Messiah comes. So we're going to meet a very pagan, arrogant, proud king. And God has some advice for that king. In Psalm 2, he would look at a man like Nebuchadnezzar, and he would say to him, kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. That idea of kissing the sun is not sort of what you and I do when we go to certain cultures and we meet each other. If you go to certain cultures and you walk into a, a, a service like this, you will notice that people will give each other a kiss on the cheek. And sometimes they'll give it on both cheeks. And sometimes in our mind, when we hear somebody say, kiss the sun, that's what we have in mind. But in Psalm 2, when God says to men like Nebuchadnezzar, to powerful, arrogant monarchs who rule world empires, kiss the sun, what he means by that is, Submit to the sun. Humble yourself to the sun. When the sun extends its hand to you, kiss it. If you kneel before his foot, kiss it. Kiss the sun before he is angry with you. 
lest he break you apart in his wrath. And so we meet a very powerful and a very arrogant king. We met in the book of Daniel, and we'll meet again, a very humble servant, and his name is Daniel. And as we enter into the story of Daniel's life, as Daniel brings us in, not just to the biography of uh, what happened to him, not just in the sections where we are told about Daniel and about Daniel's friends, at the end of the book, in the last half of the book, Daniel actually brings us into his mind. And we don't just get to hear stories about Daniel, we actually get to hear Daniel's thinking. We get to feel Daniel's emotions. And so we are going to enter into the life of a very humble servant of God who had to live out his faith in amazingly bold and gracious ways. This was a man who had unusual wisdom, and we want to know where did he get that wisdom? How in the world did he navigate living as long as he did in the pagan kingdoms of the world under men like Nebuchadnezzar and later uh, his grandson, Belshazzar? How did he navigate Cyrus the Great for crying out loud? How did he handle Darius the Mede? I mean, you go back and read human history and you see these names and these are not minor players on the world stage. These were not people who were known for their gentleness and their meekness and their kindness. When we get to chapter 8, you start looking at human government and, and what Daniel wants you to see about human government, he presents to you in the form of ravenous ferocious beasts. And if you go read the history of the world and what the historical record of Nebuchadnezzar was like and what Cyrus the Great was like and what Darius the Mede was like, a ferocious, furious, ravenous beast is very much in line with how those men lived and did life and what the people under them felt in their kingdoms. And here is this humble servant who rises to the very top of those kingdoms and he ministers to those beasts. And we want to know how in the world did that happen? Where did he get the wisdom to do that? He is consistently faithful and has made, his life made an amazing impact for the king of kings in the kingdoms of the world where he was placed. And ultimately, isn't that what you want your life to do? Isn't that what I want my life to do? I may never stand before a Nebuchadnezzar. I may never stand before somebody as powerful as Darius the Mede or Cyrus the Great. I may never have the opportunity to sit at the top of a world empire right under the monarch like Daniel did. But I do know this. I want my life, however small the circle of its influence is, I want my life to have that kind of an impact. And I think you want your life to have that kind of an impact too. And so the book of Daniel is all about wisdom. We meet a powerful, arrogant monarch. We meet a humble, praying servant. And we meet a silent but sovereign God who all through the book is orchestrating his will. We meet a sovereign Lord of heaven 
and we meet his anointed, appointed champion. Now, just before we jump into the second half of the book, can I just remind us of why the elders believe it is important for us to look at a book like Daniel and take the time that we're taking to do so? There really are four reasons for this. And let me give them to you very quickly. And let me just remind you. And by the way, uh, all these messages are on our app. And uh, we do have an outline form of them. And the QR code is in the little card in front of the, ch- uh, in the, in the pocket of the chair in front of you. So feel free to download that and use that uh, for your own, um, uh, your own spiritual aid. We do use these in our community groups. So let me give these to you so that you have them in your head. We live in uncertain times. And we need to learn to live confidently and joyfully in the midst of all of that uncertainty. All you have to do is turn on the news or look at the news feed on your phone. And every day, more uncertainty piles into your life and to my life. We live in uncertain times. And we must learn to live confidently and joyfully in the face of an uncertain future. We live in a secular and an immoral culture where we must speak truth and defend righteousness. And we need to do it courageously, and we need to do it graciously. And that's the most amazing thing to me about Daniel, is not just that he stood courageously in front of a man like Nebuchadnezzar. He did it so graciously that when he was done speaking, Nebuchadnezzar's life was impacted. We can, we can speak truth great, uh, boldly and do it in such a way that it absolutely destroys what we are trying to accomplish or what God may be trying to accomplish through us. And so we live in a culture that is secular and immoral, and we must speak truth and defend righteousness courageously and boldly. We live in spiritually dark times. There weren't Many more dark times or or times that were much darker than the ones Daniel lived in. And like him, we are called to display the beauty of the gospel by living faithfully and redemptively in that darkness. And then fourthly, we live in a desperate and confusing time and we must strive to live humbly and prayerfully in ways that please God and that advance his purposes and display his love. And Daniel did all of that. And he wrote this book to give us wisdom. And that wisdom is going to come in three segments. And so we looked at the first segment last week together. Let me just uh, remind you of that wisdom. Daniel has wisdom for the nations. Daniel has wisdom for men like Nebuchadnezzar. He has wisdom for men like Cyrus the Great. He has wisdom for men like Belshazzar. Daniel wrote down wisdom from God for the nations. And you could sum up all of that wisdom that God has for the nations around one idea. God rules. If you want to sum up, the first part of Daniel, and if you want to trace that idea throughout the chapters that start in chapter 1 and go all the way through chapter 7, and really all the way through the book, you're going to walk away, and what God wants the kings of the world to know, and what he wants you to know, and what he wants me to know is this, he rules. He rules. We have a word for that. It's a theological term we throw around, and and you know that term. You've used that term. We sing it sometimes in our hymns, but it's the word sovereign. God is 
in charge. God is in control. His will is being done. He is the one who raises up kingdoms, and he is the one who gives those kingdoms power, and he is the one who takes those kingdoms down again. He orchestrates the human history that his people have to live. He controls the boundaries and shapes the destinies of very powerful nations. That's what we saw in chapter 2 and in chapter 7. These visions that sort of sketch out for us in very broad colors the history of the nations of the world. God is in charge of all of that. He controls their boundaries and he shapes their destinies. He preserves the lives and he elevates the honor of his faithful servants like Daniel and like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. We saw in chapter uh, 3 and in chapter 6 how God did this. He was able to preserve the life of three humble servants who refused to bow and worship an idol. He was able to spare and preserve and elevate the life of a faithful servant in chapter 6 who refused to pray to somebody other than God. God, in the midst of all of that hostility, in the midst of all of that arrogance and power and idolatry, God can preserve and honor his servants. And by the way, you and I desperately need that at times, don't we? God knows how to preserve his people, and God will honor their faithfulness. And then we saw that God knows how to humble even the most pagan and most arrogant of kings, and we saw two examples of that in the book. We saw in chapter 4 God humbling a pagan king named Nebuchadnezzar and granting him repentance. And then in chapter 5, we saw God humbling another pagan king named Belshazzar. And instead of repenting, Belshazzar hardened his heart, lifted his hand up against the Lord, and God brought about devastating wrath. God has a word for the nations. That word was so clear, it was so powerful, it was lived out in the life of his people. It was declared in the book of Daniel in the language the world knew. It was written for the nations. God is sovereign. Heaven rules. God rules. But then we get to the second half of the book, and we notice something unusual. And we noted it briefly last week, but let me remind you again. When we get to chapter 8, we have a language change in the way the book was written. Now, you don't pick this up in your English Bible because the entire book is in English, but if you receive the scroll from Daniel right after he wrote it and you opened it up, one of the things that would shock you is that the second half of the book is in a different language than the first half of the book. The first half of the book, the wisdom for the nations, is written in the language everybody in the world would have understood, Aramaic. But there is a wisdom that God has for his people about the nations. There's a wisdom that God has for the nations, and the wisdom is, I am sovereign, I rule. But there is a wisdom that God has for his people, and it's almost like God says to Daniel, and I want you to come here, 
and I'm going to give you a dream, and I'm going to give you a vision, and then I'm going to explain that vision to you, and by the time you're done, I'm going to give you a special revelation. I'm going to give you a special wisdom that is for you and for my people. So the second half of Daniel, beginning in chapter 8 and going to the end of the book, is written in a language that only the nation of Israel would have had familiarity with. It's written in Hebrew. So this wisdom is a wisdom for God's servants. God had a wisdom for the nations. Heaven rules. God rules. Now God has a wisdom for his people. And the wisdom for his people has to do with those nations. Because when those people are actually living out their lives in the middle of those nations, sometimes it is very hard to remember that God rules. The rule of God, the sovereignty of God, can almost feel invisible to people like Daniel when they have to get every, up every day and put on their sandals and their robes and go out and live in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And somebody like me can look over at Daniel and say, Daniel, good job today. God rules. And Daniel's like, I know, I know. And, and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are standing there in this big plain filled with people, and all of a sudden they get the word, we're all here in a worship service. Shadrach's like, did, did you know that? I thought this was a political thing. I, I, the, I, well, the thing I got was about we're supposed to be here and, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar has this thing he wants us all to do and all the political people are, I thought this was a political thing. And it becomes really clear to those three brothers that this is a worship thing. And the thing they're supposed to worship towers over them and it is a massive statue of gold. And they have a choice to make. And they haven't read Daniel yet because it hasn't been written. So they don't know that they're going to go into a fiery furnace and a fourth guy's going to show up and the king's going to be amazed and all the people that threw him in there are going to be burned and the robes are going to be fine and the ropes are going to burn, but their hair's not even going to be cinched. They have no idea that's coming. We're like, go, guys. Awesome. You're about to live a miracle. Heaven rules. And they're like, I sure hope so. You ever been there in your life? You come to church and somebody like me stands up and says, I know you're about to go through this. I know you're about to go. You can go with confidence. Heaven rules. And you stand there or you sit there and you're like, man, I sure hope that's true. I'm writing it down six times. You and I live where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego live. We live where Daniel lived in the middle of the kingdoms of the world. And sometimes God has to pull us aside and say to us, now I have a wisdom for you. And the wisdom for you is different. God is sovereign and God does rule and we need that just as much as Nebuchadnezzar did. But there is something different that God wants us to know as his people. And here it is. You see all of those kingdoms that you live in. You see the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. You see the kingdom of Belshazzar. You see the kingdom of Darius the Mede. You see the kingdom of Cyrus the Great. You see the coming kingdoms. You see the kingdoms of Greece. You see the kingdoms of Rome. You see all of those kingdoms, God is saying to his people. You see all of those kingdoms. You see their power. You see their beauty. You see their dominion. You see their expansiveness. 
They seem almost unstoppable. There is a kingdom that matters more. And it's my kingdom. And that kingdom is going to overtake and subdue all of the kingdoms right now that are subduing you. And so the second half of the book of Daniel is all about a wisdom for God's people. Now let me give you a little roadmap through this section because it's a little bit confusing. And so you may want to jot this down somewhere. Chapter 7, we saw at the end of the Aramaic section, is also at the beginning of the Hebrew section. It's like a hinge. So a hinge has two parts to it, or it functions like a hinge. So chapter 7 closes out the wisdom to the nations, and it opens the wisdom to God's people. My kingdom matters more. So chapter 7 is the controlling vision in the book. You're going to read in that vision about the kingdoms of the world. You're going to see the kingdom of heaven. You are going to see the very powerful kings of the earth. And and as you see these kings, what, what Daniel wants you to know about these kings initially is this. They are against the king. They are doing exactly what Psalm 2 describes. They are raging against the king and against his Messiah. And the whole book of Daniel, particularly chapter 7, gives you this controlling vision that is a roadmap. You're going to see all the nations. You're going to see four nations, but they represent all the nations of the world. You're going to see the king of heaven, and you're going to see the son of man, his appointed king. And by the time you're done with chapter 7, he's going to get a kingdom. And that's the kingdom that matters. And as you keep reading in chapter 7, the kings of the earth, all of them are not happy about what just happened. And they are going to set themselves against the king who is sitting on the throne of heaven. And they're going to set themselves against the son who received a kingdom that is going to happen on earth. And that is going to replace all of their kingdoms. They are not happy about this. And so you have this controlling vision. If you get that vision, you have Daniel. Chapter 8 is... A second vision, there are four visions in the back half of the book. Chapter 8 is the second of those visions. And what's happening in chapter 8 is that you are going back to the beginning and you are listening to Daniel and he is getting a vision that starts from his time and it's going to go all the way to the coming of Messiah the first time. So when you look at chapter 8, what you discover is that that the kingdom of heaven that has been given to the Son doesn't appear right away. The kingdoms of the world keep kingdoming. They keep rolling. And it may seem like there's nothing going on. Daniel has this great vision, and for centuries, nothing happens. And so in vision number two, which is chapter eight, 
Daniel is going to explain to you what is going to happen from his day, from the day of Cyrus the Great, till the first coming of Messiah, which happened in our life, uh, in our in our thinking, two thousand years ago. So you're going to get a section of human history described for you apocalyptically in chapter eight. By the time you get to chapter nine, Daniel feels about what he just saw, like you probably feel about what you just heard. What, what are you talking about, Pastor? What, you, what, what is this vision bit? And, th- and that's, how, that's exactly how Daniel feels. Daniel is going, but wait a second. You said that, th- and I just read it, Lord. You said in Jeremiah that, that we weren't going to have, we were like going to be, it was going to be 70 years of exile, and the 70's done. Unless I did the math wrong, the 70's done. And, and what's this bit about these kingdoms coming up and oppressing your people and oppressing the sun and speaking bold and loud and arrogant things? That's not supposed to be the history. You said it was 70 years, and it's been 70 years. And it's like God says, Daniel, I'm going to talk straight to you in chapter 9. I'm going to talk straight to you. I did say 70 years in Jeremiah. But if you go all the way back to Leviticus... And you start reading when I told Moses and what Moses wrote down for you. In the Torah that you've been disobeying as a nation the whole time, I said and I told Moses to tell you and he wrote it down for you. I said that if I disciplined you and I sent you into exile and you continue to rebel, that I would extend the discipline seven times more. So, Daniel, you're right. I did say 70 years. But what have my people been doing for the 70 years of discipline? The purpose of discipline is corrective. The purpose of divine discipline and the purpose of biblical discipline is corrective. It's to draw us back to spiritual health. When God disciplines you, that's his purpose. There's not a one of us in this room who are going to live our Christian life without some moments of discipline. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, if you never experience divine discipline, you ought to be so alarmed because that's one of the biggest signs that you are not a child of God. Right? When God disciplines his people, when God disciplines you and he disciplines me, the purpose of that discipline is not punitive. It is corrective. It is to bring us back to spiritual health. But what happens to people when they go under that kind of divine discipline? Well, you have two examples of it. Back in the first part of Daniel, when Nebuchadnezzar came under divine discipline, what did he do after seven years of divine discipline? He humbled himself, and he repented, and he exalted God. What did Belshazzar do when he came under divine discipline? He lifted up his fist against God, he hardened his heart against God, and he went on to destruction. And those two responses to divine discipline don't just happen in pagan kings. They happen in our life. That's the point of chapter 9. 
Chapter 9 is bringing us in to a conversation between God and Daniel where God is having straight talk with Daniel about the discipline he's brought upon his people. Daniel, I'm the one who put these people under discipline. You remember back in chapter 1? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, I gave him into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. You remember those vessels in the temple? I gave them into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. I am the one who gave you wisdom. I am the one who elevated you. I gave you, I delivered you over to all of this. And what have my people been doing? Well, there's been a few of you who did what Nebuchadnezzar did. You humbled yourself. You embraced you repented. Daniel, you just spent a whole first half of this chapter praying and confessing. And what have I done? I've drawn you close. I've elevated you. I've preserved you. I have, I have honored you. But what has the nation been doing? And to find out what the nation's been doing, you are going to have to go to places like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Because the book of Jeremiah and the book of Ezekiel is happening at the same time Daniel is living in Babylon. And it describes for you what God's people are doing for those seven years. And let me give you an example of what they're doing. The reason they went into captivity was because they would not listen to the word God sent them through Moses. So now that they're in discipline and they're out in Babylon as a nation, God sends them a word through Jeremiah. And here's what he says to Jeremiah. Jeremiah writes them an inspired letter, just like Moses gave them an inspired covenant. Jeremiah sends an inspired letter over to Jeremiah's in Jerusalem, and he sends an inspired letter over to Babylon to all these people who have been taken away under the discipline of God, and he says to them, I need you to know something. I know this is what God would want you to know. I know the plans I have for you. This is not to destroy you or to tear you. This is to build you up and to give you a future. So here's what God wants you to do, all of you people in Babylon. You're to settle down. You're to marry. You're to have children. You're to buy homes. And you are to pray for the welfare of the city. And when that letter hit, God's people in Babylon, they were furious. How in the world can that prophet in Jerusalem tell us these things? This is absolutely not what we're going to do. We are not going to settle down in this place. We are not going to build homes. We are not going to pray for Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to get those temple vessels back, and we're headed back to Jerusalem. And they were so angry about Jeremiah's letter that they actually wrote a letter back to the priests in Jerusalem. And when that letter hit, it went like this. Dear priests in Jerusalem, thank you so much for uh, reaching out to us and forwarding us Jeremiah's letter. Uh, we hated it. In fact, it has caused no small stir in our midst. We are making plans 
Well, by the way, the plans are going quite well. We're making plans for the return. We anticipate it'll be a year or two, but we have a plan in which we're going to get the temple vessels back. We're working on the details of that. And, uh, and so we're, you know, we got, we're accumulating our spears and our swords and our weapons, and uh, we're accumulating all the things we need for the journey back. But we have a problem, and it's Jeremiah. You guys in Jerusalem have got to get that guy under control. Would you believe he wrote a letter to us and he told us to settle down and buy houses and marry and pray for the welfare of this kingdom? We're not doing it. Here is a nation in the middle of discipline receiving an inspired letter from God telling them what to do and they say no. Well, what about the people in Jerusalem? Jeremiah's like, no, 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 don't go to Egypt. Don't, ah, oh, we're going to Egypt. Yeah, you're coming with us. And so down down to Egypt they go, and they get to Egypt, and they look at Jeremiah, and they say to Jeremiah, this is amazing, they say to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, we are sick and tired of what you're telling us. We're sick and tired of, of all the Yahweh talk. When we were offering our offerings to the moon goddess, we had it better. So here's what we've decided, and our husbands are all on board with this. We're going to start making those offerings again, and we're going to start offering the offerings back to the moon goddess. These are people under discipline. You say, well, I can't believe that. Well, yeah, you can, because sometimes you and I do the same thing. God brings discipline to our life, and and we sort of reject it. And we get hardened by it. That's exactly what went on in this nation. And so at the end of 70 years, here's Daniel in chapter 9. And he's saying to God, God, 70 years is up. You wrote it down. As, uh, Jeremiah wrote it down. The 70 years are up. And, and God says to Jeremiah, I need to give you wisdom about those nations. The 70 years is not up. If you go back and read what I wrote in Leviticus, I said if my people were exiled and they continue to sin, I would extend their judgment sevenfold. And that's exactly what you see. The people are now coming into the land, but they are still under discipline. And so... Daniel is very discouraged, and he gets one final vision that starts in chapter 10 and goes through chapter 12, and he says about that vision, well, Lord, what do I do now? I can't eat. I can't sleep. I can't think. I'm at the end of my life. Cyrus just sent a whole bunch of us back to rebuild the temple. I'm too old to go, but I just saw a vision and, and I'm worried that when those people get to go back to Israel, it, it's not going to be what they think. And God says to Daniel, let me give you a final vision. And he's going to give Daniel a vision very similar to the first vision he got in chapter 8. But this time the vision is going to go way past the first coming of Jesus. This vision is going to go all the way to the second coming of Jesus. So chapter 8 is a vision that God gives Daniel about the kingdoms of the world continuing to have presence and really even continuing to be over God's little kingdom. And that vision goes all the way to the first coming of Jesus. Daniel is so concerned about that because I thought it was 70 years. God says, no, it's longer 
And then Daniel says, I need, I need an explanation. And God gives him the final vision in 10 through 12. And that final vision, he says, okay, Daniel, let's go back to chapter 8. And this time, we're not going to just go to the first coming of Jesus. We're going to go all the way to the end. And at the end, the kingdom of the Son that you saw in that controlling vision in chapter 7, that kingdom is going to come. And the kingdoms of the world are going to be the kingdom of that son. That is the wisdom that God has for his people. And by the way, you and I are part of that people. We keep looking at the world around us and, and the kingdom of the son has not yet come. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Let me have you turn there very quickly. In the book of Hebrews chapter 2, there is a stunning statement about this. In the book of Hebrews chapter 2, it's all about this kingdom. And we can see that because as the writer of Hebrews starts talking to people like us, he says this in verse 5, It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. God did not give the kingdoms of the world to be ruled by angels. Well, then, who did he give it to? Look at verse 6. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man? Ding, 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 ding. In chapter 7, we met a son of man who stood before the ancient of days. He got kingdom, dominion, power, glory, honor. That's who we're looking at here. This son of man was given a kingdom that would rule over the entire earth. But you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything in subjection under his feet. You left nothing outside of his control. Verse 8. But, end of verse 8, at the present moment, right now, in Daniel's day, in your day, in my day, right now, we do not yet see everything in subjection. The kingdoms of the world are alive and well. The beasts that ravage God's people are still there. In fact, they look like they're getting stronger. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But verse 9, but we have seen something. Something has appeared. We see him. He's the one who appeared. When did he appear? 2,000 years ago. He appeared. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Who's the him? Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for every man. Why is this? Verse 10, it was fitting. In God's mind, this was proper. This was right. In my mind, it's not right. Those kingdoms should not have this kind of power over God's people. They should not have the ability to do the kinds of things they do. It's not fitting. And God says, let me tell you what's fitting. Let me tell you what's appropriate. Here's what's fitting. That he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's what's fitting. You want to know what's in God's mind? God is bringing many sons to glory, and he's bringing them through all of those nations. That's why this king stood on top of a mountain at the end of his life, 
on earth. And he said, go into all of those kingdoms and make what? Disciples. That's what's fitting. So what are we supposed to do with all of this? How do we take a book like Daniel and, and make it work in our life? And that's the final thing I want us to look at, and that is a word to the wise about wisdom. We get a word to the nations, a wise word to the nations, and the word to the nations is God rules. No matter what you think and no matter how powerful you get or how beastly you are, God rules. It doesn't matter how long the human kingdoms go. They can go forever until Messiah comes. God rules. And then to God's people in the second half of the book, God says now in the middle of all those kingdoms, and and as you live under their rule and you experience their opposition and their pressure and their suffering, don't for a minute forget the wisdom I gave you. My kingdom matters more. My kingdom matters more. And then at the very end, there is this wisdom to the wise. Because the book of Daniel is a wisdom book, and it's written to wise people so that they will become wiser. And the first thing that God would say to you about wisdom is this. If you want to understand how to navigate like life like Daniel did, if you want to understand your place in the kingdoms like Daniel did, you're going to need wisdom. And in order to get wisdom, you're going to have to ask. Isn't that what James said? If any man lack wisdom, let him ask. So you're going to have to ask God for wisdom to navigate life when you live in the kingdoms of the world. You're going to have to receive that wisdom humbly even when it's not what you expected or desired. Daniel did not expect to be told that the 70 years of captivity were now going to be multiplied by seven. And you may not expect to get the wisdom that God gives you. And the only way that you're going to navigate life when the wisdom of God is not what you expected or it's not what you wanted is to do what Daniel did, and that is to embrace it humbly even when it is not what you expected. And then you have to live that wisdom out confidently, obediently, joyfully, and redemptively. Daniel said in chapter 10, O Lord, by reason of the vision, pain has come upon me, and I retain no strength. Sometimes where God puts you and how the world around you is operating, it it literally drains you of your strength. And in chapter 10, God sends a message to Daniel. He says this, O man, greatly loved Do not fear. Shalom be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. How do you get strength? In a time like the time we live, you need the word of God to strengthen you. You need the will of God to guide you. You need the promises of God to assure you. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. Some people will take this book and they will spend their entire life and exhort immense amount of strength trying to figure out who all the little players in these visions are. What are these ten toes? Who is that horn? What about those other two horns? What about the goat? What about who are these people? And some people are very convinced 
that they know exactly who those people are and when they're going to show up, and they know all the things that they believe they need to know about the numbers. And when you get into their life, they are just as troubled and they are just as pressured as the rest of us. And I want to suggest something to you. The book of Daniel was not given so that you could figure out who the Antichrist is or what the numbers mean. The book of Daniel was to strengthen you and to give you wisdom as you live in the kingdoms of the world now. So as we begin our journey back through the book of Daniel, that's the roadmap that we need. So let's receive this book gladly. Let's submit to it humbly. Let's pray and receive its wisdom joyfully and submissively. May the Lord help us to do that. Let's read it thoroughly. Let's try to interpret it carefully. Let's apply it personally, and let's live it faithfully and model it graciously. Father, we come before you. We ask for your help in this. Lord, what a marvelous book you've given to us. What a stunning set of visions